their physical condition. We pray your grace on them. And despite the smile on many people's faces today in their hearts, there's still a void there because they have loved ones, family members, people they care deeply about who don't know you. And we do celebrate your birth today in light of, in spite of all of those things, we rejoice in you, Jesus, because to everything that we've mentioned this morning, you are the answer. And with you, there is hope. And I pray that that Christmas hope that you have brought into our world would be shed abroad in the hearts of all those that we've heard for prayer requests today, whether the need is physical or spiritual, financial, whatever it might be, that you might work in every situation, in every heart, to bring about peace, peace that only comes from the Prince of Peace. We ask now, as we look into your word for these few moments we have together, that we will learn from the angels what Christmas is all about, so we might better worship you and give you the glory that they did so long ago. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zachariah, allow me to lay a foundation that maybe will will suit for the three challenges or thoughts that we're bringing this morning. Because really the angel's perspective at Christmas doesn't quite begin at Christmas, does it? It begins back at the beginning of time. In fact, it begins back prior to... It goes back to God's creation when that's really the story begins, when God in his wisdom and sovereignty puts together the universe and creates the universe in six days. So here we see the creation of, of everything, including the angelic beings, in the first six days of creation. We find ourselves somewhere in Genesis chapter 1. And then we step into Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And here are the angels. They're singing glory and praise to God, as Job talks about in Job 38. But we step into chapters 2 and 3, and there seems to be a darkness that moves over the world, over the earth, because there is rebellion that's stirring in the angelic beings. Satan, who's head of the angelic hierarchy, leads this rebellion, and he's not happy with his position of being the one that's to be the top angel, but yet to give praise to God, glory to God. And he looks and he reasons, look how awesome I am. Look at me and my beauty. And so in pride, he lifts up his heart and really rebels against God. And as a result of that rebellion, apparently a third of the angels are cast out of the heavens. And thus we step now into the garden. And I think of our holy angels as they're watching all of this transpire and the two-thirds that stay to continue to worship God and to give God glory and praise. And they watch the evil angels. We're not sure how long it took, but as Satan puts on the form of a serpent and he starts to slither his way towards Adam and Eve. What do you think the angels were doing? As they're watching Satan and his plan starting to move towards God's creation, do you think they're huddling together and shocked and God's holding them back, that maybe they wanted to burst forth and stop this evil being moving towards God's special creation. Satan continues to move and brings in question and questions Adam to Adam and Eve, God's intentions and God's direction, his motivation. You know, I think of the angels and some of their emotions because I think of Luke chapter 15, verse 10. You remember that where it says that when there is salvation or there is one person that turns to the Lord, there is joy in heaven in the presence of the angels over one that puts their faith and trust in the Lord, Luke 15, 10. So they have emotions, I think. So as they're watching all this transpire and they're shocked as, as Adam and Eve fall in disobedience to God and fall in their worship of God and 
submit to Satan's lie and his leadership. How the angel's message has been crushed and they're shocked and their mouths perhaps are dropped open. But then they hear some stunning words that come forth. That God says in Genesis 3.15, the first of many incredible sweet passages that would cause them to wonder and cause them to be be interested to look in deeply as to what he meant. And God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and the seed of the woman will crush your head or bruise and you'll bruise his heel. I imagine the angels getting together and talking. What do you think God meant? What in the world is, who's, who's the woman? Who's, who's the offspring of the woman? What's going to come forth? What's going to transpire? Luke chapter 15. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1.12. Let me read that. 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, here you go, in the things that have now been announced, sent from heaven, and it says at the end, things into which even the angels long to look into. This, this word long means to crave something. It means to desire something. It means to have a great passion to know. So the angels are craving, and we pick up the word salvation, grace of God, suffering of Christ, and subsequent glory. So over the centuries, marching forth from Genesis 3.15 forward, as God is giving all of these incredible revelations to the prophet, as he's hunkered down with his parchment and with his inkwell, and he's writing down, I see the angels hovering over, absorbing the words that he's talking about, what does this mean? What is this happening? They want to know, their desire to look into, they're craving to have more information. But they don't. This same word is used, this word to long, is used in Matthew thirteen seventeen when Christ saying to the disciples, which things the prophets and righteous people long to see. There was a craving, and the angels have the same craving. I step from here as we think of the angels, decade after decade, Century after century, hearing God's holy men writing of this one day, one that's going to come, one that's going to be the servant of of God, one that's going to suffer for mankind. And we think of all of the incredible prophecies from Genesis 3.15 through Moses talking about that great prophet and talking about Isaiah and the suffering servant and Zechariah's predictions and Malachi and Isaiah, the forerunner. They put all of this together. The angels are just trying to understand then one day, shock of shocks, they're stunned because they see movement in the triunity and they see Christ standing up and announcing the words that are recorded in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Sacrifice and offering you're not happy with, but you prepared a body for me. And then they watch in shocks of all shocks, what in the world's happening as he steps into the womb of Mary. But I want us back up six months as we step into Luke chapter 1, if you would turn there, please. Luke chapter 1, just for five minutes, 8 to 17, as we look at the angel that has a message to present to, to, um, to Zechariah. God sends Gabriel. It says, Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, one who stands in the presence of the Lord. So here's Gabriel. The same Gabriel of Daniel 8, same Gabriel of Daniel 9, same Gabriel that would go to Mary. So here he's given 
a special announcement to go to, to Zachariah and to announce something incredible. Again, how would he feel longing all of these years? God, bring it on. Let's begin the end of Satan's reign. Let's crush this evil one. Let's bring on the suffering servant. Let's put an end to this, this wicked one and this rebellion. It's time for the revival to begin and his heart pounding for this day. And now God says to him, I want you to send this message. I want you to take this message. And as he's running down and he races down, perhaps with special speed, to, to Zechariah to appear. Zechariah is going through his priestly functions. And it was his division of priests, uh, his group of priests that were to be serving in the tabernacle. And he was appointed. He got the, 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 the fortunate position to be able to offer incense. So here he is offering incense before, before God. And Gabriel appears to him. Now, how would you respond if you suddenly saw an angel? I know, men, you're used to that, aren't you? Because you see your wives every day. But here is Gabriel standing before before Zechariah, and Zechariah starts to shake. In fact, literal translation is fear fell over him. Fear just consumed him, fell upon him, and he's seen this angel. But his first words, as the words to Mary also would be, do not fret, do not fear, don't be troubled. Well, why not? I mean, he must have been, I mean, let me tell you, it's about to start, it's coming. We're about to end this rebellion. The pieces are now falling together. And he says, and your prayer has been heard. Apparently, passionately praying to God, bring a child. But let me tell you, not only having a child, but it is an incredible child. The one that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 40. Your prayer has been heard. So what was his emotions? What was his responses? He's penning these or speaking these words. Is he speaking with robotic um, lack of emotion? I think it's the same emotion that we would that we'll hear someday. From Revelation, when we're in the heavens, chapter 6, verse 10, the martyr during the tribulation, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, they want victory. The angels wanted to get on. God, please. So he announces to him this great one that's to come. And I think as he's talking about who your special child is going to be, I think as he's giving all of these sweet sweet words in this sweet prophecy. I think it's racing through his mind. All of the defeats. Garden, Tower of Babel, worldwide flood, the rebellion of the children of Israel, Kadesh Barnea, Babylonian, Syrian captivity, Babylonian captivity, idolatry, all of this. But now, here comes the prophet, and he keys in twice in his words using the word turn. It means to return, to turn to. Here comes this one that's going to crush, that's going to announce the one that will come to crush the head of Satan. But specifically, he says, your child will cause many to turn to Israel, turn to God. Will turn many of the children of Israel to God. Many will return to the Lord their God. It's time to bring the great revival. It's time to get it started. He's coming. It's time to bring it all together. So as he says, and he will go before him, preparing the way of the Lord. I say this angel spoke with great passion and emotion because it was time to see God and God in all of his victory bring about a master plan that will bring him incredible glory. And I think of the words turn. You know, God is still doing his work. God is still 
bringing many individuals to Christ, and he's calling many people to turn back to him. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The angel announced what the great prophet John the Baptist's message would be to turn people through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ still wants to do that. And perhaps we're at a point where we've accepted Christ. And we're going through the Christmas story and we're used to this story and we're here because that's just what Christians do. We go to Easter and Christmas. Um, But maybe God wants to speak to you in a special way and call you back. Maybe you need to return to the Lord. Maybe you need to throw yourself back upon God and just get right position with him, returning back to the Lord. God, we love you. We thank you for for your grace. We thank you for the salvation that's come. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his subsequent glories as he's in the heavens. And God, just thank you for all of your sweetness to us. And may we this time of the year turn back to you in gratitude, in heartfelt praise and thanksgiving for all that you've done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas. We're looking today at the angel's perspective on various situations, and uh, this morning I'm looking at the angel's perspective on Mary. What would Gabriel's perspective had would have been on Mary as he spoke to her and told told her of Jesus' uh, coming birth? It's really tough to know because we're not told a lot of the angels' thoughts. The angels uh, don't speak a lot. Uh, We're not given insight into their thinking or their own personal thoughts. Uh, The only things that we can gather from their perspective would be their words. And we're going to be looking at Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. As was mentioned, Gabriel is mentioned only specifically three times in the Bible. We're going to look at his, uh, his words to Mary. Uh, Pastor Dave already talked about his words to Zechariah and mentioned that he showed up in Daniel as well. And we can only surmise from Gabriel's words that his perspective is going to be the same as God's word, God's perspective. And what was, so what was God's perspective? What was Gabriel's perspective on Mary? Well, again, we can only surmise from from his words, what his perspective was. But there, I, as I look through it at this passage and other passages in the Bible, I, I see a stark contrast between God's perspective on events and our perspective on events. We naturally see what is right in front of us. We see an accident happens and we see pain. We see suffering. We see loss. And we quickly categorize that in our minds as tragedy, don't we? Even as we've heard some prayer requests this morning, we hear of difficulty and and challenge, and we see what's going to happen in our circumstances as people are sick, as there's a loss of a job, as a a vehicle is is injured, and what's going to cost us financially and personally, emotionally. And we only see pain, suffering, tragedy. But as we see, even in Gabriel's perspective on Mary, I think God's perspective is often very, very different than ours on these events in our lives. 
example, this week I heard on Family Life Today podcast, I heard the interview of Catherine Elizabeth Clark. She was a young mom with two, two small, two young children. Uh, she was at school um, with the children on the playground, playing tag, having fun. As many of you have as, as parents, you've been running around the playground, playing tag, having a good time. And as she was running around, a, a young child decided to climb to the top of the playset, over the top of the barrier. And as she was running around it, that young young man decided to jump off the top of the playset and happened, his feet happened to land on the top of her head. And, and she heard a, a crack and her body went limp and she fell to the ground and lay there motionless in the playground mulch because that child had snapped her neck, injured her spinal cord, leaving her a quadriplegic. Fascinating interview as she recounts what was going through her mind at that moment and as they detail her, the uh, events that followed and um, her recovery um, to this day. And yet her perspective, being a godly young woman, uh, was, was really, really good. And though we see, we see that, and what do we think right away? Ah, oh, terrible, right? I wouldn't, I, wouldn't watch, I wouldn't want that on my family or anyone that I know. Because we see pain. We see loss. We see, oh, a mother that can't take care of her children, let alone herself. What's going to happen to the family? All, that, all that's going to take place there. And yet, God, who sees, who's timeless, who knows the end from the beginning, who designs all things, sees that and sees it far differently than we do. He sees, yes, he sees our pain. He empathizes with our suffering. But he sees what he's going to accomplish in that in a very different way than we do. And I see that in Mary's story, in Gabriel's announcement to Mary. In fact, let's look at that in verses 26 through 38 of Luke chapter 1. It reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we're not giving given any more details on Gabriel's perspective other than 
his words to Mary. But notice, notice some of the particular words that Gabriel uses in his announcement to Mary. Notice in verse 32, he describes Jesus as her, her, her child is going to be the son of the highest. And in verse 35, he says, the power of the highest. And if you look further in Luke, in verse uh, 76 of chapter 1, Zechariah spoke of his son John as a prophet of the Most High. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels who announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds said, Glory to God in the highest. In Luke 6, verse 35, Jesus said to the disciples, You shall be sons of the Most High. And even the, the, the demoniac in Luke 8, 28, called Jesus the Son of the Most High God. If we were to ask Gabriel his thoughts on this event, I think he would have said, what an awesome event in history was taking place. The coming of the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. However, if you were to speak with Mary and ask her her perspective on this event, I think it might be far different. As she saw the potential ridicule and suffering that she would endure as an unwed pregnant woman in a society that did not accept that. In our day, if a, if a, if a woman gets pregnant and she's not married, it's pretty well accepted. It's, pretty, it's, com- it's kind of common these days. It's not as big of a deal. However, in, in Mary's day, in, in that Jewish society, if a woman got pregnant and she was not married, that could be grounds for, for not only being divorced, but being stoned to death. And Mary faced the rest of her life, if she survived, the possibility of being ridiculed. As she went to the market, the people would say, oh, that's that woman. As she, as she grew up, and even as Jesus grew up, she continued from those that didn't view Jesus correctly as that woman. And she was looked down upon in society. Those that were in control of the society, the, the Pharisees, ridiculed her. And she, so she saw this event, I think, from a far different way. Even as she, being a, a godly woman, looked forward to, to having Messiah, and I'm sure was excited and thrilled in that sense, I think, but I think the reality, just like you and me, of what was right in front of her, the circumstances that she was going to face, how that was going to change her life, I think that would have been difficult for her to deal with. And so I think if we were to interview again, Gabriel, about what the coming of Christ was all about, <clears throat> what our Christmas celebrations would, should be all about, I think he would tell us that Christmas is all about making much of God. It's about worshiping him as the highest above everything and everyone else. And we recognize what it means to be the highest and high, high achievers in our society. I mean, just last year, the, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. And the town threw them a parade and practically worshipped them, right, as they went downtown. And then this year you watch a game and they lose and they're booing them off the field, right? Go Philadelphia. We recognize what it means to be highest. And in high school, the, high, the person with the highest GPA is honored at, with a valid Victorian. The, the, uh, the batter in uh, MLB with the highest batting average is given the golden bat. In the military, the highest rank is a five-star general. So we recognize what it means to be the highest, what it means to be great. Our, so our culture knows all about things that are the highest. And, but the Bible is clear that the highest honors 
deserve to go to God. That he is deserving of the most glory. He's called the most, he's called God most high. He's called the most high God. In Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called, they were called the servants of the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar even knew that, that God was higher than any Babylonian God. Daniel referred to him as the most high. In fact, that term, the most high, is used 110 times in scripture. It means that there is no comparison between God and anything or anyone else. And so as Gabriel came to earth to make this great pronouncement of the coming Messiah, the son of the most high God, I wonder sometimes if he was just a little bit shocked when he was given the assignment to go and speak to to Mary, that young, young woman who was nothing. She wasn't anything politically, financially. She had no status. She had no recognition in her culture. And so I wonder if Gabriel questioned in his mind, what, really? You want me to go to Mary? That Mary? She's going to be the mother of Jesus? But Gabriel calls her the highly favored one, and Mary later says in her Magnificat, in verse 48, that the generations to come will call me blessed. And she reckoned she could see through her circumstances, her lowly circumstances, that although she wasn't the highest in any way, that she was going to be the mother of the son of the most high God. In fact, I think that's why Gabriel was sent to, to her, to sent to Zacharias, and to lowly shepherds. Shepherds, you know, had no status in that society. They were... They were kind of like, you stay out. <clears throat> we're going to go in the restaurant, so you stay outside. You, you don't come in here because you stink. You deal with sheep. And yet that's who the angel made the announcement to. So I think one principle that we can draw from Gabriel's presentation to Mary is that we show God to be the highest when we become like Mary and we become the lowest. I think Mary recognized her humble position. She twice called herself God's slave in verse 38 and 48. She identifies her condition as lowly and as humble. And her magnificat, her praise to God, recognizes the ups and downs, the highs and lows of her situation. But you know, God loves to put low people high and bring high people low. And in short, I think we make God high when we make ourselves low. Just like Jesus. He was son of the most high God. Again, from our perspective, he deserved he deserved the parade down down Nazareth, down in Jerusalem. He deserved the one. He deserved to be raised up. Should have been a celebration for the whole nation of his coming. And yet he was born to a lowly Mary in a stable and he grew up and he washed his disciples feet and he served people and he died on a cross 
So how do we live like Jesus? How do we become like Mary? How can we make God, how can we make God and Jesus high at Christmas? Well, we do that by living our lives every day like Jesus. We live contrary to our society's way of thinking. Our society says, you put yourself up first, you take care of yourself first, and you make yourself first. And God says, be like, no, be like Jesus, be like Mary, be humble, be a servant, put others first. And we become low, that makes God look good. And to do that, we need help. If you look at the power, and if, if you look a little, do a little further study about the power of the Most High in Luke 135 and 2449, we see that God gave, God used the power of the Most High on Mary to give her the ability to have Jesus. And later in Acts 1.8, we see that the disciples were going to be given power from on high as they were given the assignment to go throughout the whole world and spread the gospel. And that's the same power that we need today to draw from God's power for us to have his perspective so that this Christmas and every day we can live like Jesus, live like Mary, and live low that we might make God look high. They are at the beginning in the time of Jesus' birth. And then we see them again in the time at the end of Luke, his death. Uh, They're there in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane to give him strength. And they're there at the tomb to greet the women who come on resurrection morning. So angels are absolutely crucial in this gospel. In my passage, where the angel Gabriel uh, comes, I believe it is him anyways, and comes to the shepherds in Luke 2, 8 through 14. It's an interesting chapter. In fact, it's an interesting passage. A lot of emotions in Luke. Fear not. All three of our passages start with the angel saying, fear not. So there's emotion there of fear. Don't be afraid because there's too good to miss. And he also talks about behold. The word behold is used ten times in Luke 1 and 2 because There's so many events taking place that the Bible wants us to see how amazing that Christmas is. So I'm sure the angels, when they come to talk to people, are very emotional. They're excited. In fact, Gabriel can't keep it to himself. In this passage, he says, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. So you got fear and you got amazement and you have joy. It's there. And and, and angels have been that way for a long time. And Dave alluded to um, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels desire to look into it. And it was funny because I was studying that in the original language and I asked um, my children uh, what you think the word rubbernecking. You ever ever heard that number? You have to be older. Any older people like me? Rubbernecking. You remember that one? Right. So I asked my daughter and she, I won't even tell you, she didn't have any clue (laughs) what that was. But rubbernecking means to what? When you're driving down the road and there's an accident, as, as if it's not already going slow enough in traffic. You have to kind of stop your car, and they used to think you'd maybe put your window down, you stick your neck out, because you want to see what's happened, right? So you like stretch out your neck, and you're looking. And that's the idea, really. The word in the Greek means to stretch your head forward. And so I I guess angels have been rubberneckers for a long time. (laughs) And Gabriel, imagine, he comes the first time God sends him to do some work, And 700 years previously, he's talking to Daniel. So imagine 
we see him 700 years later. I mean, he's been waiting. I mean, he's been waiting and stretching his neck out, looking at everything for about seven centuries. So he's been, you know, holding up traffic for a long time with all the angels. But he finally gets a second chance. And he pulls up here. And, and, and the story is that he, he comes and announces, I believe, to the shepherds uh, the great news. Now, the angelic announcement is this, that there has been a king born. And that's what Messiah means, by the way. Anointed one, Meshiach, is a Hebrew word which means the king. Jesus is the king. He is Lord, another name for the same thing. And so Gabriel, the first time he came, he talked to Daniel. Don't turn there, but in Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is the prophecy of 70 weeks. And he talks about when Messiah will come. And he talks about Messiah the prince will come. The very next verse in the last part of the prophecy says, but he's going to be cut off because the other prince shall come. So Gabriel knows that when Messiah comes, there's, he's not the only one who's going to be called prince. There'll be two princes, and these princes are going to have a problem. And so you come to our passage in Luke 2, and Gabriel comes and announces to the shepherds, hey, Jesus is born, and he's been born in the city of David. See, he's the rightful king and Messiah. But you know how the chapter starts? It starts in chapter 2 and verse 1. And it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So you got two princes, you got two kings, you have two kingdoms, and they are completely opposite of one another. Caesar represents world ruler, that kind of king. Jesus is world redeemer, because he's come to be not only king, but the the prophecy of the angel says, a savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we have two princes, two kings, two kingdoms, two announcements. Caesar's announcement is about taxes, about money. But Jesus is all completely different. Caesar says it's for all the world. Jesus says it's for all people. And so you have two kingdoms. And Christmas, listen, Christmas is about conflict. It was prophesied that the two princes would have a problem. And whether that prince in the Roman world was Herod or whether it was Caesar. See, here's what Christmas does. Here's what Gabriel wants us to know. You know what the message of Christmas from the angel is? Is you have to make a choice. Which kingdom will you live in? Which king will you bow to? And that's the problem, isn't it? You see, there are two kinds of kingdom. There's the power over kingdom that forces people to pay taxes and money and register and make trips. And then there's the Jesus kingdom, which is the power under kingdom. And so when, they find, when the angel, angel says, hey, he's the city of David, and you're going to go, and here's a sign. It's a sign. This is a revelation from God. When you look in a little feeding trough, there's going to be a baby in swaddling clothes that you usually wrap dead people with. You see, the whole thing is this. You see, you're in a world and you're forced to be in Bethlehem because there's this kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is an alternative kingdom. He's not the power over. He's the power under. He's not in palace. He's in a peasant stable. He's in a place where animals feed. They are completely opposite of one another. See, and we're thank, we think that we can handle making this choice. Oh, I choose Jesus' kingdom. See, but it isn't that easy. Because if you fast forward through Luke, past the Christmas story, to the Easter story, you know what you find out? Peter's in the garden, and you know what he says? They're going to arrest Jesus. So he takes out his weapon because he doesn't really realize what kingdom he's in. 
So he takes out the sword and tries to cut off Malchus's ear. Read it for yourself in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. And he touches them and he heals them. And, and he says, this is not my kingdom. My kingdom doesn't use weapons like swords and clubs. And it says, Jesus said, hey, I know you came to arrest me with swords and clubs, but this is your hour and it's the power of darkness. See, that's what that kingdom is. It's a power over kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is a power under kingdom. And by the way, it isn't because he doesn't have the power to power over. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in Luke's gospel, he is sweating great drops of blood. He is such agony. And he's praying on his hands and knees. And he's asking God to take the cup away from him. And it says when he was done praying, that an angel came. Luke twenty two forty three. Now you could think that angel. Remember that angel? One angel can kill 186,000 Assyrians. So you think that angel's coming. In fact, Jesus told Peter, put it away. I could call six legions of angels, which is 72,000 of them. It isn't that Jesus can't power over. It's that he won't power over. Because that's not what his kingdom is. And the Bible says in that verse in Luke twenty-two forty-three, and the angel strengthened him. What do you mean strengthened him? Is he not God? Yes, but he became a man. What did he need strengthening for? He needed strengthening for to drink the cup, to suffer, to lose when he could win, to die when he could live, to not let, not with words verbally or with actions, lash out at people. When they said to him on the cross, come down and we'll believe you. They would have just died, wouldn't they, if he would have come off the cross and really... And he could have, but he didn't. You know why? It's not his kingdom. Our kingdom isn't swords and clubs. It isn't power over. It's not position. It's not authority. It's not ruling people. It's not manipulation and force. It's none of those things. You know what our kingdom is? It's about mangers and about towels and about crosses. Faith Christian School... Powered under for Christmas. And I had the children bring in change for a change. And all the kids brought in the nickels and dimes and pennies and quarters and totaled $650. And I had the privilege on Friday to go to the grocery store with my wife and we bought pajamas for adults and children who are living at the Anchor House downtown in Trenton, which helps people out when they're really struggling. And one of the, our church who comes here, Meredith, she works down there and runs that, that uh, ministry for the inner city of Trenton. And we got to buy them pajamas, and we bought robes for them, and we bought laundry detergent, and those were our weapons. And we gave them, our weapons were little quarters and nickels and dimes, and we were able to give, tow, uh, I should say, robes and pajamas. See, those were our Weapons. Our weapons are bus rides to Brooklyn and taking our friends who don't know Jesus so they can hear the gospel proclaimed and get a chance to talk to them. See, our, our powering under includes lunches with people and breakfast with people and talking about their soul and giving them the gospel. It's about Christmas conversations. It's about having people over at your house when you'd rather be with your family. Because we power under, you know Why? Because that's the kingdom and we must choose it. See, Christmas is about a conflict. In fact, most people miss it 
But at the end of my passage, it says, not only was there one angel, Gabriel, but it says a multitude of the heavenly host. And by the way, every time you hear a heavenly host, it refers to armies. And you know why they are petrified? Because when the angels come and they appear, they have swords and they have helmets and they have armor. And they look like, in fact, in one passage in the Old Testament, they were having spiritual chariots. I mean, imagine seeing hundreds and thousands of angelic army people right there, soldiers. You see, Jesus said, listen, they've come not to fight. They've come to sing. And that's what we do, isn't it? We don't fight that way. You know how we fight? We're going to fight this morning. You know that. And we're going to fight when you stand up to sing and you open your hymn book or you watch the screen. You know what we're doing? Spiritual warfare. Because those are our weapons. We are the power under people. We are the people who sing. We're the people who stand up and speak and speak words and think that somehow it'll transform people's life and cultures and societies. And it's true. That's what Christmas is. Gabriel would tell us the king has come. But he also tells us there's another king and you must choose. Who's king? Which king will you worship? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, we choose Jesus. He is our king because he is the king. We choose his kingdom. And in in so doing, we also choose mangers and towels and water basins and feet and crosses. We choose that because you did. Help us, Lord, in this Christmas conflict to choose your kingdom and live it out every day for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.